0: morning, everyone. Good morning. And thank you, Rachel, for reading for us, and thank you, Lucy, for leading us. Uh, please do keep your Bible open or on at uh, Revelation 7. If you were here last week, we uh, we left this question hanging. It wasn't a question that I'd made up or come up with. It was right there in the biblical text at the end of chapter 6. It was the last three words who can stand? It's an important question. It's a serious question. There's a lot riding on this. Let me read and remind you of the bit before it so that we have a better understanding of what it's really getting at and referring to, what it's actually asking. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And so the question is, and this explains why this is such a weighty, significant question. The question is, who can stand the irresistible, inevitable wrath and judgment of God and of the Lamb, Jesus? Because if that great day, to quote the text, although some might want to take exception to that, because if that great day is actually coming, if it will eventually happen for you and me, then it's vital. It's essential we know the answer, or we discover the answer to who can stand we can't leave that question hanging. We can't risk not having an answer. The stakes are too high. Well, this morning as part of our look, and if you've been following this series in Revelation, you'll know how important that word is this morning, as we take a look, at chapter seven, we're going to identify an answer. We're actually going to identify two connected answers. And I'm going to give you them in a second. A week ago, we read about and we watched something extraordinary take place. The Lamb of God, that's Jesus, had taken the scroll which was in the right hand of God who was seated on the throne. And he, that's the Lamb, starts to open the scroll by breaking the seven seals one by one. And the only reason he could do that is because he was the only one worthy to do that. And this scroll appears to be, as we've been saying all along, it's the scroll of history. It's the scroll which contains God's plan to restore the world, to rectify what's wrong. It's his plan to judge and to save and to sort out and to put right. And in Revelation 6, the first six seals are slit open. And so the four horses and their riders come out. The cry of the Christian martyrs echoes as they wait for justice and as they wait for their number to be complete. And future cosmic disruption that accompanies the final crisis and the end of the world as we know it is described as people cry out for the rocks to fall on them. And if you want to hear more of what we said last week about those first six seals, have a listen again to last Sunday and now we're ready for sale number 7 but we're not because although you'd think that when you turn the page from chapter 6 to chapter 7 you'll read about the opening of sale 7 but you don't there's a pause there's an interlude we don't get to hear about we don't get to watch seal number seven being slit open until chapter eight, until next week, and so we're kept in suspense. And the reason for that, part of the reason for that is that question at the end of chapter six, who can stand? Because that question needs addressed. That question needs answered. And although it's not all that chapter 7 does, it's not all that it reveals and discloses, it's a big part of it. We do find answers. Thank God, we do find answers amidst more of the tricky stuff. I said I was going to name the two answers pretty early on, so here they are. Who can stand? those who are sealed, and those who have had their robes made white in the blood of the Lamb, those who've been rescued by Jesus. That's who's going to stand. Now, I accept those answers need further explanation, and hopefully that will happen. Okay, let's take a closer look at this chapter. By the way, do you remember the question that we need to keep asking as as we read Revelation? We need to keep asking, what John does what next? What John sees next. That's the question we've got to keep asking all the time. Not what happened next, what John sees next. And so it begins. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against the tree then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given part to harm the earth and sea saying do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads clearly clearly things were going to happen four winds are going to blow, which some people think refers to the four horses and the four riders that we thought about last week. But however we understand it, it seems that what's going to happen is going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. That's obvious from the word harm that appears twice here. And four angels are holding back those winds. But in his vision, John sees a fifth angel with the seal of the living God, more seals. And this fifth angel declares that before any of this kicks off, the servants of God, the disciples of Jesus, need to be sealed. They need to be marked. They need to be identified in some way, and we'll unpack that soon. Back to the text, verse 4, and then I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it lists 12,000 from each of 12 tribes. But we need to keep reading. And although some of your Bibles and some of our translations make a break at that point and have a subheading, let's remember that those subheadings and those breaks have been inserted. They're not part of the original. So you've got to read on. Verse 9. After this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And it goes on, as we heard Rachel read it to us, to describe them dressed in white robes, carrying palm trees, Palm branches crying and singing, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And then that multitude are joined by those four living creatures with all the weird eyes and the 24 elders in worship. And then there's a question, another question, and it's a brilliant one because as John looks, one of the elders, one of the 24 seems to step forward and asks him, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? It's a brilliant question. And I love John's answer. Look at, number, look at verse 14. Sir, you know. In other words, I have no baldy. <laughs> I have no clue who they are, but you do. And then the elder replies and he responds, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And then... Then he goes on to describe the incredible environment and conditions that they are now in. They're in the sheltered presence of God, where the Lamb is their shepherd, where every tear is wiped from their eyes. This is paradise. This is their eternal dwelling. This is their future destination. This is the new heaven. This is it. And there's so much I know I need to say, but just for a second, can we pause? There. Can we just take that in? Or try to? Because as John gets a glimpse of the future. He sees this multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual multitude that no one can number, countless people together forever, lost in wonder, love and praise with God, with the Lamb, with each other. There's no tears, there's no pain, there's no death, there's no need, there's no want, there's no division, there's no disappointment, there's no dysfunction, there's no discomfort, there's no hunger, there's no thirst. And on and on it goes. It's just perfect. Can you see it? Do you want to see it? Will you be part of it? Who can stand? But let me back up for a second. Let me go back to that elder's answer regarding the identity of those who will be there. And I will also go back to the 144,000 for those of you who are chomping at the bit. <laughs> who are those in the white robes? It's those, to quote the elder, who have come out of the great tribulation. Now remember, tribulation means pressure. That's what the original means. More accurately, crushing Pressure. And let's also remember, and this is vital, that this letter was written to, as we've been saying all along, this whole letter of Revelation was written to specific Christians at a specific time in a specific place. And those Christians in AD 96 or there or thereabouts are under real pressure. They are facing tribulation, great tribulation, great. Distress. Do you recall how John introduced himself at the very start of this letter? Now, I know we're going back a bunch of weeks. I don't expect anyone to remember, but listen to this again. I, John, your brother and your partner, your fellow partaker in the tribulation. This was happening first century. This was the context these Christians found themselves in. John was there. That's why he's on Patmos Prison Island. And it's still happening today. We're still under pressure. Great distress. Tribulation. And the Bible, the New Testament, Jesus himself makes this clear. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart! I have overcome the world. The tribulation, the great tribulation, has been on since Jesus came and overcame, and since people started to follow Him, and it's on today. And yes, it will intensify as we get closer to the final crisis. Christians are not immune. They're not. Are not immune. They're not removed from it. And so back to the elder. Because those who are in heaven, those who are around that throne, are those who have come out, who are coming out. They are those who have persevered through, who have emerged from their struggle, and are now on the other side, if you want to use that language. But the reason they've persevered, the reason they're coming out of the great tribulation, the reason they're now standing in heaven in all out worship is because of the second thing the elder says and explains. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the people. These are the ones who know that the Lamb of God, that Jesus was slain and slaughtered for their sin. These are the ones that know Jesus was pierced for their transgressions, crushed, crushed for their iniquities, that it was their sin that held them on that cross. These are the people who know that it's by his stripes they're healed. These are the ones who've been forgiven at the cross, who've been rescued by his death. These are the ones who every single time they hear these words of Jesus, this is my blood shed for you. These are the ones that every time they hear that, they are so grateful. And by the way, in case anyone's distracted by the thought of robes being washed in blood and made white, how does that work? The Bible is explicit that it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from every sin. It's the blood of Jesus that purifies us. So who can stand the irresistible judgment of God and Jesus? Who can stand the great tribulation? Who will be among that numberless multitude? Those who are trusting in Jesus in a sacrificial death. And therefore, they're the ones who can sing with total integrity and belief, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Now listen, please put yourselves in the shoes of those reading this the first time around. Remember, this is who it was written to. Those seven first century churches and individual Christians from different backgrounds who were up against it, who were under great pressure to give up, to give in, to sell out. Imagine the hope this instilled, the impetus this would have provided to keep Going because of what John sees that lies ahead. There is a new day coming, and because of Jesus, they will be there. They will be there. They can stand. They will be standing. What about you? What about you? So let's go back to the first answer to that question, who can stand, because the first answer is those who are sealed, and to the 144,000. My goodness, is at the time already? <laughs> I will deal with the actual ceiling in a moment, but what about this rather specific figure? Is this saying and implying that only that exact number and only ethnic Jews, sons of Israel, will be sealed as servants of God and followers of Jesus? I don't think so, for a few reasons. I don't want to get too bogged down in this, but I do need to say something. So here's three reasons I think we've got to be careful about this figure. For a start, numbers in Revelation need to be handled carefully and often symbolically. It's just one of the standard features of apocalyptic literature and writing. And as part of this series in our reading of Revelation, if you've been journeying with us, we've already come across this with the number seven. So for example, in Revelation 5, when it made reference to the fact that the Lamb of God had seven horns and seven eyes, none of us actually thought that's what it meant, that it meant that Jesus has seven horns and seven eyes. No, it means and refers to his perfect strength and perfect wisdom. Or when we read about the seven spirits of God, we don't think that God has seven spirits. No. As we said, it refers to the perfect Holy Spirit, because the number seven symbolizes perfection. And in this chapter, we have another example of where we need to pause before making a number or taking a number with mathematical literalism. Or as Michael Wilcox so helpfully puts it in his commentary in Revelation regarding the 144,000, it's a suspiciously tidy sort of a number that is more likely to be a symbol than a statistic. Now, there are those who are way smarter than me that have made the point that this figure with its sets of 12 and 12 times a 1,000, it is ultimately a Hebrew way of saying a complete number, it's a Hebrew way of saying a big number, a numberless number. It's a bit like that incident in Matthew's gospel where Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone? How many times should I forgive a brother who sins against me? And he says to Jesus, should I forgive them seven times? And Jesus turns around to him and says, no, you shouldn't forgive them seven times. You should forgive them 70 times seven. Now, does that mean that once you reach 490, you stop? Of course it doesn't, because that again is a Hebrew way of saying it's a big number. It's a numberless number. And so, first off, we need to be really careful about numbers in Revelation. And I don't think we need to kneel down specifics. It's big. That's the point. Second re- reason we need to be careful not to isolate that particular number and assume it's only Jews, it's only one ethnic group, is because of the way John lists the 12 tribes. As many of you know, genealogies are incredibly important in Scripture, really important. And whenever people start messing with them, as John appears to do here, then you know there's something more going on. And so, for example, did you notice John lists Judah first? It's never happened before. Judah was not the firstborn son of Jacob. Reuben was. But in John's list, Reuben now appears second. So, why is Judah up to number one? Well, given what John heard about the one who was worthy to open the scroll being the lion from the, li- the tribe of Judah, does that mean that since Jesus came, the whole list changes? Plus, what happened to Dan? One of the 12 sons is not on this list, he's disappeared. He's been omitted. He's been forgotten. Why is that? And how come Manasseh is included in this list? He's not a son of Jacob. He's a son of Joseph. And his mom was an Egyptian. Could it be that John is saying that with the coming of Jesus, with the coming of the Messiah, the nature of Israel has changed? Its purpose has been realized? It's been chosen not simply for its own sake, but for the sake of the nation's That this is now part of the outworking of the promise to Abraham back in Genesis. In your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And now that Jesus has come, he has, as the choir, we heard the choir singing in Revelation 5, he has purchased for God with his blood men and women from every tribe. That's the second reason we need to be careful. But maybe the biggest reason, we need to be careful about that specific number and who it includes, relates to the flow and the structure of the chapter. And particularly this hear and see rhythm that keeps coming up. Look at this with me. In verse 4, did you notice it says, and I heard the number of the seed. And then you get down to verse 9 and it says, and I looked and behold, a great multitude. And we've come across this pattern before. In John chapter 1, he hears a voice. He turns around and he looks, and what does he see? He sees seven lampstands, and he sees one like the Son of Man walking amongst them. In Revelation 5, he hears about the lion, and he turns around, and what does he see? He sees a lamb. And here, he heard the number of the sealed, there's 144,000 sons of Israel, and then he looks and he sees a great multicultural, multi ethnic, multilingual multitude from every nation. And it's really interesting in this how those four things are turned around from ever before. This time it's nation first, then tribe, then language, or people, then language. But what does it mean to be? sealed. What even is that seal? Well, apparently in the first century secular world, slaves were sometimes sealed on their foreheads to show who owned them, who they were serving, which is maybe why John refers to the sealed as the servants of God, those who belong to Almighty God. Plus, those of you who know your Old Testament, and remember we keep saying there's so many connections between Revelation and the Old Testament, those who know your Old Testament will know there's that interesting incident in Ezekiel 9 where judgment is about to take place, and those who are dishing it out are not to touch any man or woman who has a mark on their forehead because it identified them as different. And all of this could be wrapped up in this idea. But ultimately, what this seed does is that it identifies people as belonging to God. Plus, it protects them in whatever is going to come their way. Not from whatever is going to come their way, but in whatever is going to come their way. And again, We need to think about how did the people hearing this for the first time process this? Hearing that the servants of God, they, the disciples of Jesus, are sealed. They belong. They are protected. But what exactly is that? seal? Surely for us to better understand that, for these first century Christians to better understand it, they've got to consider how else does the New Testament use this word seal when referring to Christians, referring to us? Ephesians 1, you are sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. Or 2 Corinthians, God sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The identifying mark, the sign that we belong, the source of our help and protection, our comforter and our guide is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the life of every single Christian, every single servant of God, every single disciple of Jesus. So back to our question, who can stand? Who can stand the great tribulation? Who can stand amidst the pressures of this world and remain faithful? Who can stand the irresistible and inevitable judgment and wrath of God and the Lamb? Those who have been marked, identified by the presence of God in their lives and those who have been rescued by the blood of Jesus. Those who are trusting in his death for the forgiveness of their sins, for their eternal future and for their hope. And so as John pauses as he's forced to pause between the opening of seal number six and seal number seven, he is given this glimpse of a numberless, multicultural, multilingual, multi-ethnic, multitude of worshippers standing before the throne of God, and they're sheltered forever. And the Lamb is now their shepherd, and they're cared for forever, and they're free from every negative thing forever, and they're living the best life. And those first century Christians, they got a share of that vision. And it inspired them. And we get to share it too. And what a promise. What a prospect. What a hope. Will you be there? Will you stand? the answer is a resounding yes if you're sealed by the Spirit of God and if you're saved by Jesus. I'm going to invite the band to come back. And so we sing as we close or rather we don't just sing as we close we echo Revelation 7 and we stand together and declare salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Praise and honor Glory and power be to our God forever and ever. And everybody said.